0: Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silconet in Edinburgh, joined as always by Frank Agliano. How are you doing, Frank? I'm great, David. Thanks. So last week, uh, somewhat unceremoniously, the U.S. military left Bagram Air Force Base uh, in Afghanistan, which signaled uh, not quite the end of the war there, but but pretty close to the end of the war there. Uh, The Biden administration has said previously they plan to have everyone out by September 11th. And now it appears that they've actually moved the date up to the end of August. Uh, So we thought we would talk about the ends of war and how this particular end of a war fits into that that tradition.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, well, yes. I mean, that's that's our theme this week, David. How do Americans end wars? Um, we know how they start them. They're very <laughs> adept at starting them. <laughs> but uh, I'm struck by one thing about this this Afghanistan story, which is that they chose the date September 11th as, as the final pullout. I know they've moved it to August mm. now. I mean, of course, this year, September 11th, will be the 20th anniversary of the attacks on on New York and, and Washington. Uh, it seemed a strange date to me. To, 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 I mean, on one hand, I could see they, them saying, okay, we're going to end this war. Mm. 20 years after the attacks, it's all over, sort of rubbing our hands and getting out. That's it. Um, Did did that thing strike you as odd?
0: It it did seem like an odd choice. Um, I'm imagining that, you know, Biden came in 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 January thinking that was one of the things he wanted to do and trying to figure out, you know, how long would that take and 6 months is about how long it would take and and I guess that's how they ended up with that with that date but it does it did seem like a an odd choice to sort of remind people of September 11th that as as having sort of two significances uh, 20 years apart
1: so not not least reminding people how long the United, United States, States has been in Afghanistan. Afghanistan right yeah <laughs> right. uh, um, because they went in in October of 2001 yes. exactly uh, uh, okay so so David the traditional image of the end of of Wars ending, at least in, in um, those waged by modern states uh, in the past couple of centuries, is conflict happens, there's a treaty to end the conflict, the conflict's over, you demobilize the boys, and now the boys and girls okay. come home. How often, is that the rule in American history? I, I'm not sure it is. I mean, I think this. it's much easier to sort of
0: pinpoint when wars start than when wars end. Right. I think if we want to think about when major American wars commence we you know we can think about sort of, you know Pearl Harbor or what have you know September 11th as being the beginning of that war and um, but but nailing down exactly when wars end can be quite tricky um, you know whether that is it ends with a, a a major surrender, like at the end of the, the Second World War, whether it ends with a, a peace treaty or a series of peace treaties or a ceasefire and then a peace treaty, um, I think it can be quite tricky to sort of nail down exactly when wars end. Um, you know, we tend to celebrate, I guess, World War II as being sort of the, I think it's also often used as sort of the example of how people think wars end because it does end quite abruptly. Uh, but that's often not how wars end. There's often a, a very long tail to the whole thing. What do you think?
1: Yeah, I, th- I think you're right in terms of that. And we can we'll take these through. Uh, we'll go through this in a more systematic uh, way in a minute. But if you think about that rather simplistic scenario I laid out, uh, there are only a couple, or possibly three or four times, three or four conflicts the United States has been involved in in the past two hundred and fifty years mm. that actually end that way with us with a treaty and. Demobilization of some kind. I'm thinking probably the War of 1812, the Mexican War, um, World War One. although even that has a messy aftermath because of the Russian Revolution and the American intervention and that. Um, and you reminded me a minute ago about the first Gulf War, which I'd actually forgotten how that ended, but, but it's actually pretty rare. Would you agree with that? Well,
0: I think the ends of wars are almost always messier than people anticipate. Um, because you know when you fight, there's a transition between a sort of military footing where the objective is to defeat the enemy and that's sort of your singular objective to creating a a stable political environment in in a, whatever the post war environment is, uh, and that's always more complicated, and and there's always unforeseen consequences, you know, at the end of the war, the, even after you have defeated the 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 big bad enemy, there there's always sort of Ripple effects that that are uncertain.
1: Yeah, I mean, Donald Rumsfeld died last week, um, and and he famously was an architect for the for the conflicts in in Afghanistan, but particularly Iraq. And he, you know, memorably said, "We don't do state building." Right. You know what you just described—creating a stable political environment—is state building. When did that become a responsibility for ending conflicts? I mean, if you think about, if you're engaged in a war with, with. Another with another state. Yeah, your goal is to defeat them. You sign a treaty, allegedly settling whatever differences you had, and that's the end of it, right? Well, but but well, it depends if there's any
0: territory to which is hands at the end of the at the end of the war. Then invariably you have state building, right? The end of the American Revolution, you've got state building in a quite literal sense. In the end of of the you know uh, not so much the War of eighteen twelve, but if you think about the Mexican War, there's huge state building because the United States acquires half of Mexico. If we think about the end of the Civil War, you've got to reconstruct half of the country, which is about state building, Um, you know, and and, and I think most American conflict in in, the 20th century are are more complicated in part because of how some of those ended, but those often involve substantial state building at the end or, you know, thinking about sort of the Marshall Plan at the end of the Second World War. That's about... You know, state rebuilding about about making sure that, that allies, um, you know, remain financially solvent and, and, and the people don't starve. And I think those are, are, are it's embedded within the whole process of war making to, 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 to have that kind of state building, despite Rumsfeld's proclamation, that's not something we do. Because um, clearly that's something that the United States has done, uh, you know, throughout its history, you know, thinking about the end of World War II, the, the United States re Built not only its allies, it also rebuilt its enemies. You know, thinking about writing the Japanese constitution and the ways in which the United States shaped the post war direction of Japan, that's state building. Uh, Yeah, so Rumsfeld was wrong about that, among other things that Rumsfeld was wrong about.
1: So, I mean, at some level, at a basic level, war making is, sorry, I'm going to start right, (laughs) is state breaking, right? and therefore to end a conflict so would go your thesis you've got to somehow repair or change the state that's well, been I mean, involved. I think, yeah that? i mean
0: you can't stop fighting and then all of a sudden things you know with a handful of exceptions it's very hard you know the ends of war create a new world after the war that requires refiguring the the basic political dynamics about you know where the borders are what the who the citizens are and what the obligations of the state are that happens i think at the end of every war um the war you know, wars open up you know i think a, a pandora's box about of, of social change on all kinds of levels and you know very rarely does does the end of the war close that box with all of its contents back inside uh that that, that the as an agent of change the war is, is deeply unpredictable um, e- even under the the best of circumstances, whatever those happen to be. Um,
1: All right, let, let's... Well, so let's, get, let's get down to some yeah, let, Let's kind of go through the batting order here. We'll take so, it chronologically. Well, well, so,
0: uh, you know, we got a bunch of things in the colonial period that are complicated. Well, let's start with the revolution, because that's probably where yeah, people... I, I
1: think our focus today is war making and war ending by the United States. So we'll start with the creation sure, of the United, United States. States. So, so you know, when does the, the
0: revolution... Okay, this is, this is, this is the uh, question I guess we give undergraduates for us. For when does the revolution end? Well, where does the war end? Yeah, sorry, the... the
1: revolution and the war aren't the same thing, David. So yes, I, yes thing. That, that, I know that was you know my... That. So let, let's leave that debate for another day. Mm. We'll undoubtedly have an opportunity to talk about that before 2026, I'm sure. Sure, yes. Um, when did the War of Independence end? Well, theoretically, the, the main fighting in the war ended in October of 1781 with the surrender of Cornwallis at Yorktown. However, there's another two years of not insignificant conflict that goes on um, while the peace negotiations are underway in Paris. The war officially ends with the Peace of Paris of 1783, which is agreed in September of 1783. Although I would argue, and I'm not unique mm. in this, that if you um, look at the ongoing conflict with indigenous people that, that occurred around the um, fringes of the new... Mm. This new state, to use your that was yeah. created as a result of the Peace of Paris, particularly in the northwest, what was then called the Northwest. We're talking about the territory north and west of the Ohio River, the modern Midwest and Upper Midwest. That carries on until seventeen ninety four, and arguably till the Treaty of Greenville in seventeen ninety five. And so there's at least a decade of fighting that continues after the official end of the war, because, of course, indigenous people weren't consulted in Paris when... when Yeah, they they were not at the table. They were not at the table with Britain, France, and the United States, and uh, they didn't accept the outcome. And so we get... The new United States is beset by conflict from its very... I say beset as though it it happened to... Is pursuing conflict, is engaged in conflict with indigenous peoples from the outset, and that's not... arguably not settled in that region until 1815, uh, in the continent much later, uh, other parts of the continent rather. And probably
0: starts before the revolution. Yes,
1: yeah. So So, in fact, I argued in the essay uh, many years ago, you should actually see the period from 1754 to 1815. So from the start of the Seven Years' War in North America to the end of the War of 1812, as a singular 60 Years' War for control over the eastern part of North America. Um, yeah but,
0: but uh, so for Native Americans definitely.
1: yeah yep, yeah. yeah, that's right. Uh, but but the point being in answer to your question, the War of Independence, which we tend to think of, the textbook version is, oh, that is a neat one that goes from uh, April of 1775 until September of 17. 17- uh, 83, with mm. the signing of the treaty, the outbreak of the war in Lexington and Concord in April of 1775, and the signing of the peace treaty, the conclusion of the peace treaty in September of 1783, followed by the British evacuation of New York, famously, which is, has their echoes of the U.S. leaving Bagram Air Base sure. in that. Uh, that seems to work, but it doesn't even work in that yeah, I case, agree. I would argue. Yeah. I think there's an extended period of post-conflict and state-building, totally, to yeah. use your well, phrase. And, and I think
0: often the way, that people, the way it gets taught in high schools and, and whatnot, is often it, it sort of ends at Yorktown, and Yorktown's the end and, and and with the surrender that's that's the end of everything. And and I think the story you're telling is it's a bit more complicated than that. You know, the and a war ending with a treaty is, is always I think a very interesting way to sort of think about how eighteenth and nineteenth century people thought about wars. Wars were a consequence of failed international diplomacy that you then Fight So you have a better negotiation position at the diplomatic table, which is what then happens at a treaty. Um, in,
1: yeah, I think there's, if I can just jump sure. in there, David. I also think there's less, because of the nature of warfare will start to change in this period. Mm. But It takes a while. It really takes hold in your period. Um, there's less state breaking in the earlier period. So mm. you can view wars as another means of negotiation in a game of chess because you're not unless you're directly in the line of battle, it doesn't necessarily involve civilians in the same way mm. and things like that.
0: armies but are smaller
1: the, the, the destructive yeah. capacity of the state while significant in the 18th century is not what it is today and so the aftermath should be more straightforward and so there are back to the colonial mm. period the, you know the history of the settler colonies in, in North America, uh, whether they be British, Spanish, French etc, in the 18th century, it's all about wars that they're being dragged into by their by mm. their parent states, these imp- empires, and bits of land changing hands, because that's how war is conducted in the 18th century. With the American Revolution, but particularly the French Revolution, we're going to get new concepts of warfare and total warfare mm. emerging that will evolve with technology in the 19th century that does mean that states get more fundamentally broken in war, thus necessitating recreating them, I think. So that kind of state-building function you you mentioned at the outset becomes more pronounced as time goes on because the destructive the dis- or disruptive aspect of war on states and societies becomes greater. Is that, is that yeah? Fair? Yeah, no, I think
0: that, that, that's a good point. Now, one of the more interesting ends of war, especially given sort of the chronology of it, is, is the War of 1812. Yes. Do you, do you want to talk about, about, about how a war that has its biggest battle after the war is over technically... How did that
1: happen? Yes. So the War of 1812, uh, which is one of the more ridiculous conflicts the United States ever engaged in, but really is a kind of coda to the revolution. You could argue the War of Independence, you know, the, the, the revolution, back to your original mm. question, goes from 1763 to 1850, whatever. Uh, but the War of 1812 <laughs> is this... War of 1812,
0: whatever. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> good,
1: yeah, good. <laughs> Hashtag whatever. Is a, uh, you know, it's an outgrowth of the Napoleonic Wars. The... Americans and British negotiate a peace treaty at Ghent in Belgium in, in December of 1814. News of that treaty does not reach North America for like, six, six to eight weeks. The biggest battle of the war is fought several weeks after that treaty was agreed. And the Peace of Ghent basically... established tie. Yeah, status quo antebellum. So apologies, our, uh, my son's dog obviously doesn't agree with that interpretation of the War of 1812 and finds it far more significant than, than we did. Um, so the largest battle of the war is fought at New Orleans in January of 1815. So it's theoretically, it's not theoretically, it is actually after the conclusion of the Peace of Ghent. The It's the largest battle ever fought between the United States and the British. Um hmm. uh, Yeah, yeah. Uh, And and I would argue, however, David, this this is
0: the battle that raises Andrew Jackson to be a national
1: figure. That's right. However, if the British win the Battle of New Orleans and gain control of New Orleans, which from a strategic and economic standpoint, um, Jefferson, I think correctly said, was the most important spot on the map for the for the United States. If the British had captured New Orleans in January of 1815, I think it's possible they might have tried to keep it. And or repudiated the the peace of eighteen the the, the treaty again. Huh. So uh, because the Americans win, this is seen as a sort of oh, it's a curious footnote that the big the biggest battle of the war is fought after the treaty, etc., etc. Let's suppose for for a second the British establish a foothold on the Gulf Coast. I don't think that that's necessarily the end of the war. Um, so it, it's not necessarily just a trivia question. But yes, the war of eighteen twelve has a weird ending. There's no okay. there's no doubt about to that. Sure. But but it's the closest. It, it's the It's one of the few times, as I said at the outset, that sort of fits the model, Mm. in part because the United States declared war on Britain in June of 1812. There's a peace treaty negotiated to end the war. Mm. It it makes sense in terms of the way international diplomacy is meant to be conducted, at least between powers that see themselves as roughly equal. The United States rarely uh, declares war on indigenous people, even though it wages war on indigenous people. But in terms of states engaging in conflict against each other. 1812 fits the model to a certain extent.
0: And and the Mexican War also, I think, in some ways fits the model. Right. Right. You know, the the United States, uh, the Mexican War, like the War of 1812, is largely forgotten, except unless you're in Mexico, in which case it is a major part of their history because it's, uh, you know, half of their country got lost uh, in in that war. Um, You know, but the the Mexican War begins uh, with a, a dispute over where the boundaries between the United States and Mexico um you know, and it culminates in, in the United States occupying, at least temporarily, much of Mexico, and they end up signing this treaty, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, uh, in February of 1848. And the interesting thing about that treaty was well, lots of interesting things about that treaty. Mexico agrees to give up half of its country, all of what is now, you know, California and Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, parts of Utah. Uh, Nevada uh, what have you um, is the United States actually ends up even though the United States won decisively in the war the United States ends up paying Mexico 15 million dollars for that territory which is you know a throwback to what the situation was before the war where the United States tried to go and ask Mexico if they could just buy that land and so you know when we think about what that war was doing in part and the ways in which that war ends, um you know what the united states did in waging war against mexico was arrive in a situation where they could get to that diplomatic table within a much better negotiating position saying look now we want you to sell us this we could just take it but like we, we the united states framed it in such a way as they weren't just taking it they were acquiring it um through purchase uh, and there were some Whigs who were very critical of that and they said like look this is this is Kind of a monstrous joke that we're framing this as a as a as a territorial acquisition through purchase, when in fact we went and just conquered all this stuff. Uh, but uh, that's the way that
1: treat. That's the way the treaty
0: framed it. Um,
1: so, eighteen twelve and the Mexican American yeah. War seem to fit the bill of kind of relatively limited, although significant mm-hmm. in the latter case, yeah. um, conflicts that begin with declarations of war. And end with negotiated treaties. Treaties. But the other
0: thing about the Mexican War I think is worth noting is that's one of the few cases, I think, in which there's an active political debate in the United States about what life after the war is going to look like. There's a debate in Congress about what's going to happen in the territory acquired from Mexico, even before the territory had been acquired from Mexico, about whether or not slavery is going to be expanded into that territory, how much of uh, Mexican territory the United States wanted to acquire. All those are things that Congress debates. There are some people in Congress who maybe say we should annex all of Mexico. Uh, John C. Calhoun said, no, we don't want to annex all of Mexico because that means we're annexing all the Mexicans. We don't want to do that. Uh, and he had sort of very racist ideas for why he didn't want to annex uh, Mexicans. And, you know, and so there are these very uh, extended debates, which are in some ways kind of rare. Usually, the United States, in in waging its wars, thinks about waging its war first, and then what happens afterwards, afterwards.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. Um, The next conflict, of course, the biggest one in American history, is your baby, David. And Speaking of ending wars, you wrote a whole book book about about it, it. (laughs) exactly. we did an episode on. So I'm going to hand the... uh, the, the mic to you, metaphorically speaking. Uh, when does the Civil War end? Well, if you were to ask Google, Google tells
0: you that the American Civil War ended on the 9th of April, 1865, which is the date which Robert E. Lee surrendered to Grant at Appomattox Courthouse. But that, and that's a date that you know people think about when the Civil War ends, that people often sort of point to Appomattox as being the end of the war. But in many ways, the war isn't over then, right? That at that point... Confederacy still has several major armies in the field. Jefferson Davis, the Confederate president, didn't think the war was over. He wanted to continue fighting. He told his generals to, to keep fighting. Um, and, and in fact, what you have at the end of the Civil War is not one big end of the war like in, say, World War II, where you have got a sort of definitive End date. But you have a whole series of surrenders that happen at the end of the war. You've got, after Appomattox Horthouse, you've got Bennett Place, you've got a surrender in Alabama, a couple of big surrenders in Texas, um, surrender in Florida. It's a, it's a whole series of, of times in which Confederate forces lay down, lay
1: down their arms. So, D- David, to take your state building theme, mm. Essentially, one of the one of the history, one of the ways we can see view mm. the, the history of the Confederacy is a history of an attempt to build a state. state. To be sure, and it's the collapse of that state in April and May of eighteen sixty-five. Is, is that fair? Yeah, I think that that is
0: fair. That, that you know, that's well. The, in some ways, the Confederate state was and even sure. before that. That's part of why they lost. Uh, but if you're trying to find like when does the Civil War actually end? I you mean, know, and obviously this is an interpretive uh, question as much as a, a, a factual one. You know, you could point to something like uh, a proclamation made in August of eighteen sixty-six. So that is to say, well after a year after Appomattox, where uh, Andrew Johnson uh, says we now finally have peace, order, tranquility, and civil authority in the country. And he does that to signify there's a, a new government installed, state government installed in Texas. Uh, and he thinks that is the end of the rebellion. Uh, and, you know, you could pick a whole number of dates between April of 65 and August of 66, where the you know, official end of the war is if you want to, depending on what you're defining the war as. Um, you know, and I think part of the reason why the end of the war is, is kind of messy is that there isn't a big peace treaty at the end of the war. Uh, and part of the reason why there isn't a big peace treaty at the end of the war is you can only have a peace treaty between two antagonists that recognize each other as legitimate antagonists and as legitimate states. And the Lincoln administration throughout argued that the Confederacy was not a legitimate government. It was a, a states in rebellion.
1: So here's where the analogy to the American Revolution mm. might, be, might be informative. Had the Confederacy won... Mm. Then there would have been a treaty to end the war because there would have had to be a negotiated settlement between this new state that the United yeah. States would have been forced to recognize, as Britain was forced to recognize the United States in seventeen eighty three, and there would have been a treaty at Washington or Richmond or someplace else had the war gone the way of the Confederacy. But because it didn't, there wasn't. So does that make yeah, sense? Yeah, that's a that's a
0: in terms of alternate history. If the Confederacy won, that that's a likely possibility.
1: Right. Right. Um, what about in terms of um, the argument, which again is, is mm. you know this literature better than me, but uh, one he's often made now that Reconstruction is essentially a prolonged period of armed conflict uh, between the United States government and its supporters mm. and the opponents of federal rule. and uh, Would yeah. would you go so far as to say the Civil War doesn't end until 1877? Oh,
0: oh that, that, there's a huge historiographic fight happening about this right now, about, you know, to what it, one of the things we're recognizing is, and it's something we've always known, but I think we're becoming more and more aware of it, is is really just how violent Reconstruction is, how persistent opposition to federal authority is, how persistent opposition to black freedom is, and the extent to which uh, some white Southerners, some former Confederates are are willing to continue fighting. In other means, whether that's in things like the Memphis massacre, or things uh, like the the Colfax massacre from eighteen seventy three, or things like the Klan, um. And, and one of the things that that's different, you know, and, and civil war historians are, are fighting over this right now is, on the one hand, you can view that as a sort of a continuation of. of the Civil War, right? It's about it's the same issues that are being fought over. It's this many of the same people who are involved in the fighting. Um, on the other hand, it's not pitched battles. It's not war in the ways in which uh, you know most people understand war to look, at least in the nineteenth century.
1: So it's more guerrilla insurgency. It's an insurgency. I mean, so is it all to take the contemporary example? You know, the United States invaded Iraq. In March of two thousand, March April two thousand and three, if memory serves, captured Baghdad, overthrew the regime, the Saddam Hussein regime, relatively quickly within mm. a month or six weeks, something like that. Uh, the conflict didn't stop then. There was a prolonged insurgency, uh, but but it's a bit like that.
0: That's one way to look at it, right? Right. Um, in fact, many people made that point. Um, including Eric Foner who's the sort of leading historian of, of reconstruction sort of made that point after the sort of mission accomplished uh, you know event with 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 George W Bush landing on the aircraft carrier with the big sign behind him that you know the mission isn't just winning the war the reconstruction part of it the state building if you're going to call it that is a lot more complicated you know establishing, peace is, ending war is not the same necessarily as establishing peace. Right, which of course um, is our theme today. Yeah, right.
1: uh, so, so so. Uh, I was going to say, gun to your head, that's exactly the wrong <laughs> But David, if I have to pin you down for right now today, on on um, Thursday, the 8th of July, when, in your view as an expert on the Civil War, what's your date, if you're lecturing undergraduates, when did the Civil War end, in your view?
0: Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to... Uh, Pick a date or pick an event that I think it, mostly because I think it's amusing more than rather because it's serious because I think it's a very challenging question, right? I think picking you know in a, a moment when war ends is very hard, um, but my my sort of favorite end of the Civil War event is the surrender of the CSS Shenandoah. You're familiar with the Shenandoah? Mm-hmm. I don't. I may have talked about this on the show before. My, the Confederacy had a very small navy. One of the ships was called the the Shenandoah. It was mainly a commerce raider. Uh, So it's attacking uh, U.S. uh, merchant vessels, mainly actually whaling ships up near the um, Arctic Circle near Alaska. And they're doing that in early 1865, mid-1865. They attack a whaling vessel. The whaling vessel says, you realize the war is over. The war ended like a month ago, and then people on the CSS enter the door. said, "No, you guys are lying." They burned the ship to the ground or to the waterline or what have you. Take take the prizes they wanted. They do that several more times. Eventually, they find a copy of a newspaper from San Francisco that talks about the war being long over, and then they realize, "Oops, we had a piece of paper saying we were allowed to attack U.S. ships uh, from the Confederacy." Uh, but if the Confederacy doesn't exist anymore, giving us that legal right to do that, we're no longer privateers. We're, we're, we're essentially pirates. And they worried that they, if they were captured at this point, they'd be uh, tried for piracy, and the punishment for piracy is execution. So they decide that they were going to try to sur- surrender to somebody they thought would give them better treatment, and that the people they thought would give them better treatment were the British. And so they decide to sail around the world from Alaska, from the waters off Alaska, to Liverpool. And they end up surrendering to the British in uh, the fall of 1865, sort of like five or six months after Appomattox Fort House. Uh, and sorry why I always like that as the end of the war, just because you can imagine these guys so, on so, the so, ship. So, so
1: what did the British make of them when they picked up in Liverpool well, to surrender? Well, when they get to Liverpool, they, they get to Liverpool at low tide, and the those
0: Master says, You guys got to wait for tomorrow, you know, until the tides are right for you to bring your ship in. And they're like, we don't care. We are going to We don't care about the ship. We, we just want to like... And, and the British um, really didn't want to get in the middle of this for obvious reasons. Uh, and so they sort of let the sailors go, and, and you know, the United States at that point didn't care about the ship, didn't care about, you know, and so it was a, a, a sort of a, a, a non-event in some ways, but I, I kind of like this idea of these the poor sailors on the ship, and, and obviously they're fighting for an awful cause, but just this sort of comic story of trying to sail around the world to su- surrender to the British. Um, Somebody should write a Broadway musical about, about that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. or, or a Netflix series
0: netflix series on on the shenandoah okay that's uh, a possibility um it's it's not a story it's very well known but uh i think it's very intriguing about the uh it's the location where the ship actually ran aground uh in liverpool is not far from the international slavery museum which is a which has weird poetry to it or something um Let's talk about more recent wars because I think there's
1: I think there's one we need to get to first, which is the Spanish American War. Oh, the Spanish American War, sure of eighteen ninety eight, which again seems only it's a very brief conflict Mm. and seems to
0: splendid little war.
1: Yeah, fit the fit the bill because there's a declaration of war on Spain. Um, There's a relatively brief conflict uh, in which the United States defeats Spain. However, there's a prolonged insurgency afterwards. This is probably a more apt more apt comparison to, to what happened in Iraq and that the United States is involved in a prolonged and very very bloody conflict in the Philippines which it claimed as a result of the Spanish-American war um, for a time um, that lasts about a part of a decade and is pretty nasty.
0: Oh it's extraordinary you yeah, the, yeah. the if you think about the amount of bloodshed from the actual war against Spain it was relatively mini- you know, tragic for people who died but but not very high on either side. The, the philippine insurgency if that's the right word for what that was um was extraordinarily deadly on on both sides but especially for uh, for filipinos who who died by the by the hundreds of thousands as a consequence of, of us military action there
1: and us counterinsurgency tactics anticipated a lot of what would happen in the 20th century especially the second half of the 20th and early 21st century, century to be sure as far as the way that conflict well, I mean, was
0: well one of the thinking about this, you know, the, the the United States ran into the Spanish-American War very quickly without a very clear idea about what it wanted the post-war period to look like, you know, and and there's this sort of famous uh, story of President McKinley sort of pacing the halls of the White House late at night after somebody pointed to him on a map where and showed him where the Philippines were, because I'm not sure he knew, um, you know, about what to do with these, territories, what's going to be the relationship between the United States and Cuba and Puerto Rico and, and Guam and the Philippines, and you know, the United States ends up annexing Puerto Rico, Guam, and the Philippines because they claimed the, that they weren't ready for self-government. The, the analog, though, I think, with the Philippines it, 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 and the sort of the model that the United States used there was very similar to the model that they used for fighting Native Americans. Right. Right, and, and, and the supposition is that the, that the Filipinos were for racial and cultural and whatever reasons, um, you know, unable to function as a state on their own and therefore required um, imperial oversight by the United States. Um, you know, I think that's one case in which the, the failure to really sort of think through what the end of the war was gonna look like and what the consequences meant um, were really extraordinarily devastating for, for the people of the Philippines. Because um, I, I don't think anybody anticipated a very lengthy uh, and bloody U.S. occupation of, of, of those islands in the aftermath of the war. That was not part of the discussion that went, went on when the United States went to war against Spain.
1: No, in fact, there was a huge discussion about what might happen to Cuba... And in fact, Congress resolved that the United States could not annex Cuba. So there was a sort of, um, there's a bizarre run up to the war. And our colleague Fabian Helfrich knows more about this than we do. There's a big debate about what to do about Cuba. The Philippines are an afterthought. But the Mm. Philippines are actually going to become a much more um, significant place for American military activity um, in the aftermath of the Spanish-American War. And frankly, it's American presence in the Philippines will play a big role in the coming of the Second World War in the Pacific, at Not least the, sure. the, the American entry into the Second World War in the Pacific.
0: Um, you know, when we, we think about the, let's, let's talk about some, some messy ends of wars. I mean, I think the end of Vietnam is is particularly messy. Um, how did the United States, you know, thinking again about the, the situation with Bagram, uh, Air Force Base, and, and departing somewhat um, Unceremoniously, how how does that compare to the, the U.S. exit from Vietnam?
1: Well, the U.S. signs accords in what nineteen seventy three, so officially mm-hmm. January ends its involvement of the war then. But it's the fall of Saigon. It's the it's the fall of South Vietnam mm. in nineteen seventy five that gives us that abiding image of the helicopter leaving the American embassy roof in in in, in Saigon in nineteen seventy five. It's actually
0: not the embassy. It was like actually a hotel where right. the embassy staff was staying. But anyway. Yeah, okay.
1: Yeah. Okay. sorry. Uh, But but that's the image, right? And that's in fact, that's a kind of iconic image of American defeat. Right. And clearly, I think that was on the minds. I I mean, I think we could talk about how that influence has influenced subsequent conflicts. I'm sure that was on the minds of the Biden administration about Bagram, about pulling out of Bagram this last weekend. They left three point five million bits of kit and supplies back at Bagram, mm. so they, they left pretty precipitously. But what they did, interestingly, was they left in the middle of the night and they left on a holiday weekend in, in the United States. It was a July 4th weekend. So it was a news story, but it wasn't that big a news story because I think what the Biden administration wanted to avoid mm. was that kind of image of people sure. clinging to a helicopter uh, and a superpower, alleged superpower, fleeing from, from, from a conflict. And so the the as far as how vietnam ended and how it it has influenced subsequent um conflicts i think that has been imprinted on the minds of a generation not least joe biden mm. as far as something to avoid because it was an image of defeat that was very very difficult to there's no refutation of that it's a very, very humiliating image for the united states um that 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 uh, the, the fall of saigon and so i think they've gone to great lengths to avoid that kind of image The mission accomplished moment Mm. was, if you will, the kind of repudiation of that, Mm. even though it proved to be um, um, a little bit premature. But, you know, there was no image, there's no equivalent image, for example, after the drawdown in Iraq within the past decade. You know, there's no, you know, the the United States left the green zone in Iraq, which it had invested billions and billions of dollars in building, Mm. uh, and just left. And it did did something similar in Afghanistan. So I think the... Image, I think the, the, the end of the Vietnam War and the American defeat in Vietnam hmm. has certainly shaped the American approach both to entering conflicts since then, but also in getting out of them. No, so didn't... although there have been prolonged insurgencies in both, there were prolonged insurgencies in both Iraq and Afghanistan involving American troops, uh, the ending of both of those, I think, was very very different from what we saw in vietnam we well in vietnam. i i
0: think you're 100 percent right that, that that you know the 50 years you know after vietnam it has been very much shaped by by that that moment um and and you know by that, the image uh, the very iconic image of, of the helicopters departing um that that the you know the united states i think often didn't get involved as you point out in in, in conflicts where it sh- maybe should have because of vietnam the fear of having another Vietnam w- was so overwhelming uh, in the you know late 70s 80s and 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 even more recently that that the United States has been somewhat apprehensive about you know putting boots on the ground as, as it were um, for fear of, of having it spiral out of control you know thinking about the ways in which you know, sort of the Vietnam syndrome then shaped American entry and exit or probably the, the best example that comes to mind is the the first Gulf War from 1991, where unlike in Vietnam, the United States got a bunch of allies. Um, and unlike in Vietnam, the United States set its objectives very clearly. You know, that the objective was to liberate Kuwait, the objective was not necessarily regime change, it wasn't necessarily to conquer Iraq, it wasn't to, to do any of those things. Um, you know, there's a moment in which the United States could have rolled its tanks into Baghdad in, in 91 and chose not to. Uh, and I think that in large part is an outgrowth of, of the experience in Vietnam. And you know, I think that and many of the participants involved, whether that's George Herbert Walker Bush, whether it's Colin Powell, um, even Donald Rumsfeld sort of pointed to that and said, look, we, we had a very clear objective here. We met our objective were done were signing a, a ceasefire. And I think many of them actually anticipated that, that the Saddam Hussein regime was going to fall subsequent to that uh, of its own accord based on sort of... Intent. So
1: although there was no formal declaration of war...
0: There was a ceasefire. There was a ceasefire. So and, and there was sort of uh, UN authorization for US entry, so that right, was a, right. a different kind of...
1: So, I mean, in thinking about that, George H.W. Bush of course was a World War II veteran. Mm. He was heavily involved and far more interested in foreign policy than domestic policy in terms of his his pre his pre-presidential career. Sure, he's head of CIA Right. yeah. But as and then as president I think he was much more engaged in foreign policy than domestic policy in his single term. Mm. He was also coping with the end of the Cold War, which to some extent is the end of the Second World War if you want. Okay. <laughs> yes. Um, which we haven't really discussed uh but but he that was definitely his worldview. I think so. So both the the lessons of the Second World War and the lessons of mm. Vietnam. So the the first Gulf War looks almost like a nineteenth-century conflict in some ways. It was a clearly defined objective. You did that, and then you went home. However, the consequences and the ripples of that, because the the troop presence in in the Middle East, particularly Saudi Arabia, was one of the things that engendered the, and it was a key. Injected the rise of Al Qaeda and, and the and uh, resulted in the attacks on nine eleven, which of course led to the phase of warfare we've been in ever since. So hmm. so the, the 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 ripples from that first conflict are still with us to some extent.
0: Oh to be sure, and and the consequences also for the people on the ground were 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 pretty horrific. I mean the the Iraqi regime you know was was decimated the Kurds in the aftermath of, 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 the, of the Gulf War. You know, the Kurds were expecting U.S. support and, and got a no-fly zone, but didn't get much beyond that. Um, you know, and, and I think one of the things to think about in the end of, of this war in Afghanistan is what's going to happen to um, the Afghan people who had supported the United States for the past 20 years. And one of the things I was very uh, heartened to hear is that the, the Biden administration is going to try to get many of the those people who work directly with the U.S. military, uh, allow them to come to the United States as 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 refugees or as, as um, allies, um, people who worked as translators, people who worked in, in other kinds of support and logistic uh, roles, because those people have been targeted by the Taliban for being... Uh, you know, uh, U.S. sympathizers, um, but there's going to be consequences in Afghanistan. You know, once the United States leaves, and you're thinking about the last time a superpower left Afghanistan, nineteen seventy nine, when the Soviet Union pulled out uh, of, or nineteen eighty nine when they pulled out? Um, you know, that Soviet withdrawal is what created the Taliban in the first place, um, or that sort of power vacuum. And so, what's going to happen? In Afghanistan, what's the spillover going to be in neighboring countries? What's the spillover going to be on the international stage? It's, it's very hard to predict.
1: Oh, okay. absolutely. And, and one of the things, in fact, we should have said this at the outset. These are American conflicts. We've talked about it. This has been an entirely one-sided conversation. We're mm. talking about how the United States ends its conflicts. Those conflicts always involve at least two sides, mm. often more, and these ends are very, very messy and often messier for the adversaries of the United States than, than for the United States itself. Um, Americans labor under this belief that we are a peaceful and peace-loving people despite the fact we've been at war for much of our history yes. <laughs> um, since the creation of the, of, of, of the, the state itself. Um, and and this, uh, there's it's going to be terrible in Afghanistan, I think, in the next year or so and possibly for much longer uh, as a consequence of this. Um, this conflict, uh, or the 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 conflict's not ending just because the United States is is leaving. Right,
0: much, much the same way that you know the Vietnam didn't end when the United States pulled out troops in nineteen seventy three. Right, you know. Um.
1: What one thing we haven't talked about, David, uh, is just to to back up quickly. And, uh, I know we've got to wrap things up, but is. The other way the United States has ended wars, uh, in both the Second World War and Korea, has been to maintain troop presences in in places mm. far from the United States for prolonged periods of time. The United States has now been on the Rhine longer than the Roman legions were, <laughs> um, and and in Korea for and in Korea for almost as long. True. Sure. Uh, and so 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 this is and and this is unprecedented. Uh, it, Prior to nineteen forty-five, it was unprecedented in American history. I suppose the military occupation of the Philippines is is is, is a precedent. So, so, I probably got that wrong. But but I I guess um, well, What do we make What do we make of that? Well, I mean, the United States has maintained an in, informal yet quite substantial imperial presence around the globe hmm. in the past eighty years, at least.
0: Uh, well, so you know, one of the. Things that's made the twenty military century presence, presence that it, yeah. Yeah,
1: equates to an imperial presence. Uh,
0: you know, one of the which which it is right. Um, the you know one of the ways in which the United States military is different in the um, mid twentieth century onwards from everything that came before it is the extent to which it maintained the United States has maintained a large standing army. That the custom up to that point was to keep a very small standing army and then ramp up dramatically when wars broke out and then rapidly scale back down. You know, We think about the, mentioned the end of the Civil War, one of the moments that some people point to is the, as the end of the Civil War is this sort of grand parade that's held for Union Army soldiers, even before all of the Confederates have, have laid down their, their, their arms um, in Washington, D.C., uh, after which most of them, almost all of them went home. You know and I think the at the end of the Second World War there was a decision made to maintain a, a large standing army because of the, the way the world had changed at the end of the Second World War. Uh, and as you point out, you know the United States has maintained troops in Germany ever since then um, and then and maintained troops in South Korea since uh, the end of, of that conflict. <laughs> And one of the things I think that's going on, you know, in all those cases is the recognition that maintaining peace requires, or at least they thought it required, maintaining a large military presence that that that, that to avoid another war, one needed to uh, maintain that deterrent effect of having a large force on the ground.
1: Well, that's the argument. But again, I've returned to the fact that the United States has been at war for much of its history mm-hmm. and certainly... Since nineteen forty one, um, almost in continuous conflict, someplace in the world. To be sure. I mean the, the the Carter presidency was the one exception, and even that had the rescue in Iran actually come off, might have become a bloody conflict. So, to be sure. Um, so, so so there's mm. a there's a certainly and I and I know you're not adv- mm. You're not necessarily an advocate for a huge military presence or, or activity, but uh, there have been a there have been consequences to this, not least that. Um, the United States spends a huge amount of its wealth no, on maintaining a, you know, uh, its military presence around the world and both undergirds global security, but to some extent also threatens global, global security. security right? And, and it's, uh, it does depend on your perspective um, um, as to whether this is a yeah, painful the... influence or not. Do, do we think, are these messy ends to war, and, and we're going to get beyond, our, this question will take us beyond our expertise, this is this a uniquely American issue or problem? In other words, is there an American way for ending wars? You know, Is the United States especially bad at this, or is this just what happens to great powers and this is what we're stuck with because of the moment in history the United States finds itself in?
0: That's a really good question, and as you're right, that's beyond our expertise. But I would say wars are always... The ends of wars are almost always messier than people anticipate. And, and especially they're, they're messier than people who are pushing for war anticipate. You know, that, that when you find, here calls for war, people will say, look, we will go, we will conquer this, we will right this wrong, we will fight these evil people and, and do so justly for because of X, Y, or Z. And then in the end, we will have X. Very rarely do you actually end up with a clean result the way that people anticipate.
1: That's, yes. Never believe that. Yes. And I think that I think that uh, war makers throughout history or war planners, in mm. terms of government officials and so on, always believe that. I think they're quite sincere in that when they think, okay, this this is the solution to that problem. But it, it once once you start fighting, it, it it takes you in places and directions that you can't anticipate. If There's one lesson from history: it's that.
0: Yes, yeah, so war wars is, is always bloodier and and more complicated than people anticipate.
1: All right, Frank, it's time for Last Drops. What you got? Uh, I've got a Last Drop that might be kind of seen as a sequel to last week's. I'm not going to talk about the Declaration of Arbroath, but I am going to talk about the Declaration of Independence. which is, And there is a Scottish connection. So a, uh, there was a report over the weekend, which coincided with the 4th of July, of course, that a rare copy of the Declaration of Independence was discovered in a Scottish attic. Uh, it was sold with the, the, the person, the owner was not identified, but it was recently sold at auction in the United States for $4.4 million, 3.2 million pounds. Uh, the story of this copy is interesting. It seems that it was owed, It was described as a signer's copy, and I didn't know what that meant um, until I, and I had to kind of really decipher the news report. It seems, if I'm getting this correct, uh, if I'm correct, uh, that... Um, it was a copy owned it was a copy made it seems in the early 19th century possibly the 1820s for charles carroll so charles,
0: for the 50th anniversary copy that's okay. right
1: so it's a copy that was presented if i'm understanding this correctly it was a, it was a copy of the declaration of independence made for charles carroll of carrollton maryland who's a famous signer of the declaration he was a catholic he's, a, he's always held up as a kind of example of a uh, he's the most prominent Catholic among the founding fathers, really the only one. Um, and it was a copy that Charles Carroll of Carrollton owned and gave to his grandson-in-law, who was Scottish. And so it passed seemingly down that through that side of the family and ended up in Scotland and was only recently discovered and sold at auction. So it is. it was signed by... So it's a signer's copy signed by the signer, if you follow me. So Charles Carroll of Carrollton did sign this copy, and then the grandson or the the uh, grandson-in-law added a note explaining what it was, and this was recently sold at auction. You're looking very perplexed. So he's like,
0: dear grandson, here's the document I signed 50 years ago. I signed it again for you.
1: Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it has it so so in that sense it's a copy of the Declaration of Independence, which was signed by one of the original signers. Mm, So there are people who want the autographs of all fifty six signers. So in that sense, getting a signed copy of the Declaration of Independence by a signer would be of particular value, so so but it's not a contemporary copy from seventeen seventy six. Isn't there's like there's a couple of
0: signers that are hard to get a hold of. I think it's like Button Gwinnett, like one of the hardest signers he's, to get a signature he's Very for. hard
1: to get a hold of, yeah, because yeah. he didn't sign a lot of things. I think, and he, was I think killed, he died.
0: Yeah. A, really he after. was killed oh. in a duel, actually. Yeah. Button yeah. Gwinnett, yeah. Cool.
1: yeah. Okay. Anyway. Uh, so, so there's a signer's copy of the Declaration of Independence. And so you didn't buy the Scottish copy? Well, it, it was sold anonymously, David, and I don't want to tell you how I spent my $4.4 4 million. <laughs> um, that's none of your business. Somewhere in the basement. Okay, good. What about you? What's your Well, mine's
0: actually also sort of document related. It's about a cache of documents discovered, um, thousands of documents from the Eastern shore of Maryland, uh, where there was a old house that was going to be demolished. They found these documents in the attic, um, and the families were just going to toss them. They figure it was just old trash, but then somebody says, no, we should probably auction these off. They might be worth something. So they did, uh, and they were purchased by Washington College, and it's a huge amount of documents, most of which are about, surprise, surprise, slavery in the eastern shore of Maryland going back all the way to the 17th century. Um, and so, you know, they're in the process of digitizing these materials, so it's a huge... Uh, interesting cache of, of new thing, new things to look at. So,
1: have they cataloged them at all? I mean, so do we I, know what's in there? Or?
0: And they're they're in the process of doing, as yeah. my understanding. And I've seen some of the they've digitized some of some of the documents, but the, there's you know literally thousands of pages of stuff, and so it's and some of it is uh, runaway uh, ads for for enslaved people. Um, some of them are uh, you know. De- de- deeds of sale, diaries, letters, all that kind of stuff. Um, so a huge cache of stuff that's, uh, you know, I can imagine a whole pile of, of doctoral dissertations could probably be produced from from the material that, that's found. So it's always great to, to when, when new stuff gets gets uncovered in people's attics. Yes,
1: I mean, uh, I think the public thinks that that's what we do as historians, is discover stuff in attics, and it's amazing how rare that is. So it, most, yeah. of, most of what we do is... Had to look at microfilm or stuff on... I mean, there
0: was a time when people did that. Yeah. But but it's it's been a while. I mean, like, uh, you know, the, the, the Southern historical collection at UNC was mainly found by a guy who went around to people's old people's houses and said, hey, do you have anything in your attic you want to donate? Uh, but, you know, that was 80 years ago. Yeah, most
1: um, of it's been found, I think. But, oh, yeah, we but, don't know. No, we don't know what we don't it know. has know. been found. Exactly. Know. Anyway, that's great. Great. Anyway, cheers. cheers, David.
0: The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is Professor of American History and Dean International for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at Whiskey Rebel Pod, and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes.